Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in History. I'm Anna Fishson, and today it is my pleasure to be speaking with Alon Confino about his latest book, A World Without Jews, The Nazi Imagination from Persecution to Genocide, uh, by Yale University Press, 2014. Alon, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Okay, I'm going to just introduce you briefly. Alon grew up in uh, Jerusalem and after earning a BA at Tel Aviv University in 1985 and a PhD at the University of California, Berkeley in 1992. Oh, 19, that's quick. <laughs> he joined the history department at the University of Virginia, where he has uh, taught since. Alon also holds the position of professor of history at Ben-Gurion University in Israel. He's the author of several other excellent books, uh, The Nation as a Local Metaphor, Württemberg, Imperial Germany, and National Memory, 1871 to 1918 by UNC Press. From, uh, that was 1997. Germany as a Culture of Remembrance, Promises and Limits of Writing History by UNC Press, again, 2006. And, uh, Foundational Pasts, The Holocaust as Historical Understanding by Cambridge University Press. Uh, that was in 2012. So, um, the book we'll be talking about today uh, actually begins with a very vivid and, and quite devastating scene. Um, you narrate uh, many similar scenes very powerfully throughout the book, but um, and this one is of Jews being assembled in a small German town in 1938, um, and they're made to stand for hours. The men are whipped, humiliated, of course, and transported um, to a concentration camp, I believe, Dachau. And then the synagogue and all of its contents, including Torah scrolls, are burned. Uh, at first, they're, they're, again, they're defaced, trampled on, and then burned. Now, um, book burning was, was a common ritual during the Third Reich, but you ask, why would the Nazis burn the Hebrew Bible? Because it is not obvious, uh, you're right, that they would. And this seems to be your guiding question in the book, uh, one to which, to which you return again and again. So I guess, well, I'd like to begin the interview by asking you to tell us a bit more about yourself uh, and discuss your reasons for writing the book. And, and maybe you can also speak to this, about, speak to why this becomes your central question. Yeah, thank you, Anna. Thank you for having me. Uh, I grew you. up in Jerusalem in the 1960s and 70s. It was a quite a provincial and sleepy town mm-hmm. um, and a very pleasant place to be. Then um, I went to the army in the late 80s for three years. It's hard to believe today, but um, I actually did it. Then I went uh, traveled a little bit around the world. And then I came back and I started to study Hebrew uh, history at the uh, Tel Aviv University. Um, and after finishing my uh, BA, I worked in all sorts of jobs, especially in the newspaper and in the press. I decided to uh, pursue my PhD. I went to Berkeley, where I stayed from uh, 1985 to 1992, which was my family. 
but I traveled quite extensively around the world. And now in the last few years, I hold uh, uh, two positions. I teach in the fall semester at the University of Virginia and in the spring semester in Israel, in Ben-Gurion University. Why did I write the book? It's a question that I ask myself often. I, I often also ask myself, why did I choose to be a historian? Why did I turn to be a historian? Because it's not always that what you choose actually happens. <laughs> Why is it that I wrote the books that I wrote? What does it say about myself? Yes. <laughs> Ultimately, I believe that we write one book in our life. No, it doesn't matter how many books you actually write or have written, mm. but you, you write only one book. <laughs> and, yeah. But you write it over and over again. And every time it's a little bit different. And even if the book, the, your, your books have deal with completely different things, they always part of you. I believe that there is much more of a close, intimate connection between the historian and the scholars in general, and 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 his or her books. Then historians would like to believe. Historians always say, "Well, I'm interested in this because of theoretical issues, methodological issues, geographical issues." All this is, of course, true. But we also are interested in what we do because of personal issues, whether we'd like to tell it to ourselves or not. So it's interesting that when I started to be a historian, I actually uh, decided that I'm not going to work on the Holocaust. That mm. is, I was going to be a historian of Germany, but I'm not going to work on the Third Reich and the Holocaust. And I thought that uh, this period is too close to me, maybe because I grew up in Israel. It was clear to me that this is a particular problem. And, um, and, I had this feeling that you need a certain experience, a certain profundity, sensitivity, that a 30-year-old historian <laughs> probably will not have. Not that I thought that I'm not uh, talented, but just some things come, come um, with age and with experience, or they don't come. Um, so I thought, okay, if I have something to say about the Holocaust, I will later on. So I went to work on other things, on uh, German historical remembrance, on how Germans uh, reconciled regional and uh, national identities. Um, my first book was actually how Germans came to love Germany, the nation state. It was about um, Germans after the unification of 1871, the national mm -hmm. And how did they become Germans, actually? Which, when you think about it, it's, it comes very much from my own experience as youth. How do you become an Israeli? <laughs> this, is a very, this is a very young nation. It didn't exist before. It has, it has a past, of course, the, the Jewish past. It has also an Arab past, but it doesn't, this is a much more complicated for Jewish Israelis. But how, how do you love your country, and how do you love it in such a short time? So there is, I think, a relation between also my first book and my experience. And after a few years, about 15 years, that I worked on uh, German remembrance, also of the Holocaust, but after 1945, I came, I came to see that I had some things to say about the Holocaust. I had some, um, some unease in how historians have interpreted it. And then I decided that I want to work on it. I worked on it for about six or eight seven years. I wrote two books, uh, Foundational Pasts, The Holocaust as Historical Understanding in a World Without Jews, and 
and now I'm working on, on a different topic and I'm not going to write <laughs> more about the Holocaust. So there was this specific period that, um, and I felt that I had something important to say about it. And I, uh, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to say it, whether it's important or not. It's not for me to decide this. Others will decide, but I, this is, was something that was burning in me. And it was, um, it was a very, very rewarding, rewarding period. And, and how do you think, why do you think that this became, I mean, you talk about the Nazi imagination in, and fantasy that, fantasies that Nazis had about Jews in general and about their place in history, basically between 33 and, and the end of the war. But you do place uh, the burning of books and specifically the, the Hebrew Bible at the center I mean, or at least, as I said, the sort of, mm. you make it the guiding question of the book. And I'm wondering if that's something that, um, just as a, as a way of introducing the book, do you think that this is, uh, something that you realized after you had written the book that this is your central question or, or maybe it's just the kind of flashpoint in the beginning? You, cause you do talk about many, many other things. Um, right. so I'm wondering, I'm wondering, like, sort of what shaped the question and, and if you could elaborate on, on your thesis uh, to do with that question, perhaps. So, some, of my, um, some of my unease about Holocaust interpretations was that historians, some historians, but overall historians have looked for reasons for the causes of the Holocaust. So it, it may be anti-Semitism or the, the Versailles Treaty, after the First World mm. War that, uh, that penalized Germany, or Nazi ideology, or Hitler. And for a long time, there was the, this, this search for causes, which is, of course, important. And we, we now have a, a list of very good causes of why the Holocaust happened. But I wanted to take our understanding of the Holocaust from the search for, for causes to the search for meanings. But it, it was not so much about it was called about about causes. It was about meanings and stories. I was interested in what was the story that the Nazis told themselves um, to justify the persecution and the extermination of the Jews. We all we all tell ourselves stories all the time, yeah. as individuals and as collectivities, and we tell ourselves stories when we are twenty, when we're to the same episode in different uh, junctions of our life. But we have to, to trace our past and to, to make it into, into a story that tells us why are we here, how did we get here, and to justify ourselves, especially when we do bad things. When we do bad things, we actually... Uh, much more in need of a good story to tell us why did we do it? Why were we justified in doing it? Or if we were not justified, how come we perpetrated? Certainly the Nazis, like all of us, they needed a very good story to tell themselves who they were, where did they come from, where are they going, and why is it that the Jews, uh, the Jews became so important for their identity? Because this is also the story of the Holocaust. The Nazis killed the Jews not only because they thought the Jews were uh, vermins and, um, and, and bad. They also killed them because they thought the Jews were very important. Otherwise, you don't pay so much attention mm -hmm. to a group of people. Mm -hmm. So why is it that the Jews were so important? 
And why is it that we need to kill them and how do we explain it to ourselves? So this was the key idea behind my book. That's, that's how I started it. And I took it, um, I took this, uh, I'm not the only one who is, who is doing, uh, of course, the cultural history of the Holocaust. I took this idea from uh, the cultural history, from the history of emotions, mm. from uh, psychology, um, and from the idea that you have to look less for causes and more for meanings. Why did, why do people do Mm-hmm. And um, and especially from a discipline that is or an approach that in the last generation has become very influential, and this is memory studies. So that uh, scholars study how societies invent pasts, reconstruct pasts, tell themselves something about their past in order to explain the present. The idea is that we always tell ourselves something about our past. Uh, from the point of view of the present, we tell ourselves stories about our past, not in order to get the past right, but oftentimes in order to get it wrong, to give meaning to our life. This is true for us as individuals, for me, for you, Anna, for everybody, <laughs> but and you know, also yeah. for collectivities. I think, though, that you yeah. also you also deal with another dimension, which I think not all historians, even historians of memory or emotions, really address, and that is fantasy. Um, like you, you say in the book that you're interested in the Nazi imagination and fantasies Nazis had about Jews and about their place in history, right? But then, and you you kind of have this disclaimer that you're not really being Freudian when you're talking about fantasy, and you emphasize, of course, that Nazis and Germans' fantasies about Jews are, are totally made up. Um, but you know, in in many ways, you are being Freudian because, well, because like Freud, you are putting, you're placing fantasy and reality um, on the same plane. You're not putting them in opposition. Instead, you're sort mm-hmm. of you're you're asking the question, you know, what sorts of fantasies structured Nazi and German reality? So, so in that sense, they're very linked. So these fantasies, and they're not, you know, and I think you, you, you hint at more than even hint at. I mean, you speculate about, you know, um, unconscious motivation as well as conscious motivation and emotions that aren't, are, are, you know, you talk about stories. It's true, but you also, you know, you talk about affects. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so I, I guess, I guess I want to push you on this here. So what fantasies, I suppose, were at the center of this Nazi imagination in, um, uh, well, say 1933, and then as compared to maybe like, uh, 38 and 42, because you do, you, the, the, the book moves chronologically and you kind of chart, um, this, uh, these developments, which are, which are kind of, um, slow, but, but palpable. In, 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 in sort of fantasies and imagination. Mm-hmm. I would like to link this question, this issue of, of uh, fantasy to to your question about why did I choose the, the burning of the Bible mm-hmm. as, as a key as a key episode. Um, so the, the sources about the burning of the Bible are not uh, new. Uh-huh. Oh, they were known. There were testimonies taken um, by Jews, of Jews who were victims in the Kristallnacht, in the night of uh, of uh, Kristallnacht, in the um, 
Right, right. But I don't think that we can write history without looking at people's affects and people's emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I when I mention this, the unconscious, it's also actually a way to tell historians, to tell myself, that certain things we cannot know <laughs> through history. We can know only through art and through psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it may not follow the exact historical discipline or rules of evidence, but we have to push our explanation to that, to these areas, especially to the areas of art. Because if we take this out out of history, then we miss something about who we are as humans. Um, Mm-hmm. So. You know, you, you're mentioning the, you, this kind of symbolic violence that, that uh, went on with the Torah scrolls. I was also thinking about, I mean, I was actually surprised. I, I'm not a Holocaust historian, but I was, I was surprised how much of the pre-war violence against Jews in Germany was obscene and, and sort mm-hmm. of sexual in nature. Um, it involved a kind of carnivalesque mockery. Um, yeah. and, and there was this, uh, there was a display of enjoyment as Jews' belongings were burned and men were paraded through town and humiliated. And, you know, you're right to link this kind of behavior you, in the book, I think, to guilt, um, and to, and to the intimacy between Germans and Jews. Um, and I was wondering if you, if you could talk, talk about that. I mean, you, you mentioned guilt a lot, um, as one mm-hmm. affect, but there, there are several, there are several things going on. I thought, yeah, can you talk about a, a bit about that? Yeah, I think intimacy is a is 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 a very important word here. Mm. As I said, the, the Nazis killed the Jews not only because the Jews were subhuman, but also because the Nazis thought that the, the, the Jews possessed something really important. Mm-hmm. A certain power, and not only the power of uh, ruling the world economy, as most of them believe, but something else, something symbolic, a symbolic power that, that was a threat to their identity, to, their, to, to who they were. So there was, there was this intimacy, and also intimacy in the violence, in the Nazi violence against the, the Jews. Mm-hmm. There was the intimacy, and from the intimacy come, comes, comes guilt. That is, you want to hurt the other, but you also know that the other is in some way connected to you. And ask myself, what was this connection? Mm-hmm. And maybe the burning of the Bible can, can give me a hint about it. The connection was at the origins. The, the Judaism is at the origins of Christianity and of European civilization. And it doesn't matter whether it's S.A. man or... Nazis actually went to church or not. This is irrelevant. If you want to create a new civilization, as the Nazis wanted, a new racial civilization, it would have its own time, just like the French revolutionaries, the Russian revolutionaries. They all want to create a new historical time. They all believe that their revolution begins something new in history. So did the Nazis. They wanted to have time. They didn't want to owe anything to nobody, certainly not to the Jews. So intimacy and violence actually go hand in hand. It is not simply hatred of the Jews. It's the idea that you 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 have to extricate something from yourself that is part of you, and only then you will be able to create a new thing. Mm. 
this link that also makes the Nazi brutality against the Jews um, different um, much more personal um, and I wanted and I and I thought for a long time scholars looked at But what happened in the war, which is, of course, very, very important. What happened in the war in the sense of uh, exterminating the Jews and persecuting the Jews and the violence and how the brutalization of the Second World War contributed to, uh, to the Holocaust. And there is no doubt that this is a very important part of the story. But I was, I was interested in the imagination. What, when is it that you can imagine suddenly a world without Jews? Mm-hmm. This didn't happen in the war. This must have happened before. Um, right. And, you know, yeah, sorry, go on. Mm-hmm. No, no. I, w- I was thinking about, the, the, you know, how, well, two things. Uh, first, that um, it seems that the figure of the Jew for the Nazis... Um, I don't know, because, uh, so it was like a screen or screened out of fundamental antagonism or fissures in the social order. Uh, that like this spectral Jew holds together so many contradictory elements. Um, like, the, mm-hmm. you know, the Jews are, are controlling world capital. They're avaricious bankers, but they're also Bolsheviks, uh, plotting communist revolutions. So, so this fantasy of the Jew enabled, um, sort of fundamental contradictions in German society to be disavowed. Uh, and it, mm-hmm. it stood, kind of stood in for that, that, that couldn't be symbolized. And I think this is where, you know, again, this intimacy and guilt and, 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 um, the connection of origins also speaks to that. I think, you know, it's connected to it for me. Uh, but, but also, um, I wanted to say something about time. Oh, yes. It's really interesting. So temporality is, is a big theme in the book. Um, and, and, for, for, and, and paradox has really emerged for me. You know, you were saying how the Nazis almost, uh, Germans wanted to um, wipe the Jews out of this place of origin and put themselves there instead, right? To the point where at least some movements mm-hmm. wanted to redact, wanted to create a new Bible, basically, with, with references to Jews kind of... Um, not yeah. in, yeah, just, uh, wiped out or expunged. Uh, on the other hand, so, and this is, this is the paradox, and it's interesting, it's interesting because at first I thought you were contradicting yourself, uh, in the book, but by the end of the book, I became convinced that this was a, a par- and you were, you were able to articulate this too, that it was a paradox within sort of Nazi thinking or German thinking is, is that on the one hand, yes, expunging the Jews and the memory of the Jews. On the other hand, there were these museums that you talk about and, uh, that were erected, mm-hmm. uh, or there were plans for them, certainly. There was one, in particular you discuss, but um, to commemorate the Jews and to, so on the one hand, uh, there's a burning of synagogues and destruction of the Bible, of the Torahs. And on the other hand, there's a preservation. So this, this seemed interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So there's a, of, yes. of all this Judaica and, and, and there's this kind of artifacts that are being collected and books as well um, and stored to create this kind of new history, if you will. And, and I, I, I guess it, it can be viewed as a, is either a contradiction or a paradox, but may, maybe you can speak to that a little bit because there are these two movements, right? Or these two, um, mm-hmm. yeah, directions that they're going in here. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So my, my thinking is, uh, um, I think dominated by the commingling of opposites. Mm. My historical thinking in general, and certainly in this book. So there was intimacy and violence. 
these are not these are not op- these are not opposites. Right, right. There was there was the belief of of the uh, of the Jew as a subhuman, and the belief of the Jew as a powerful entity that therefore must be extricated from myself. And there was the the will the will to um, expunge the Jew and his memory and the Bible and the Hebrew Bible and the belief that you must then retell the story and you, you, you must then retell the story and write the story of the Jews and of yourself anew. And mm-hmm. by this, giving a new interpretation. Let, let me give an example. It's not a very good example, but I think it will make it clear. Okay. Let's say that you are young, and you you had a, a, a you are a guy, and you had a girlfriend, <laughs> and you had a very good time together. Then you separated. On the one hand, you want to you want to forget about her. Mm-hmm. You don't want to you don't want to hear about her anymore. Don't want people to tell you you she really hurt you. That's it. On the other hand. You are going to rewrite now her story and your story with her. Hmm. And this will be a very important part of of not thinking about her anymore, so to speak. It's not that you are going to forget about it completely. Hmm. You want to forget about it, but you want also to rewrite her story. You want to tell to tell her story for yourself. So the idea that the Nazis wanted to, on the one hand, expunge the Jews, and on the other hand, they created a museum that told the history of, of the Jews. Actually, it's the two sides of the same coin. It's the coin in which they were going to, to write, they were going to determine what would be remembered of the Jews and how it would be remembered, and they are going to remain those who will tell the story. So killing the Jews is actually part of the memory creation Mm. The Holocaust, I say really towards the end of the book, I say the Holocaust was a memory project. Mm-hmm. The Nazis rewrote Jewish history. They rewrote it by killing the Jews because there will be no more Jews to tell the story of, of the Jews. This is a theme in Jewish uh, diaries and uh, letters written during the Holocaust. This is the Jewish themes all over that the Jews feel that there will be no more Jews anymore to write Jewish history. They understood very well what the Nazis were going to do. So on the one hand, you write Jewish history by killing the Jews. And on the other hand, you write it by preserving Judaica books, uh, planning a Jewish museum in Prague. And at the end of of the victorious war, after which you, the Nazis, killed all the Jews, you are going to build a museum that will tell the history of the evil Jews and how the Nazis uh, won over this uh, terrible enemy. So it appears as a contradiction, but actually it's, it's the same, it's, it's two different facets of the same process. Right, right. right. I, it occurs to me that making a museum in memory of, you know, museums are deadening. They have a kind of, uh, mm. you know, there's a kind of symbolic deadening that happens. Um, you say similarly in another uh, 
place where time comes up. You talk about, of course, the ghetto and the and the concentration camp and how time was taken away from from the Jews. Uh, the time stood still uh, for them in these. Um, the, mm-hmm. the camp had a, its own certain, certain temporality, and you need kind of um, movement of time in order to have sociality, to have hope, etc. And this was this was uh, taken away, but. Um, but 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 then on the Nazi side, you talk about how they wanted to create a, a timeless empire in a way. At one point, you say in a kind of, but then you also it seems like they cared a lot about historical time. So there was there again seems to be a little bit of a pull in two directions here. On the mm-hmm. one hand, there's a reference to timeless origins, um, a kind of mythic past. On the other hand, there's um. Well, there's there's an attention to, as you said, memory and history that is uh, kind of redoubled uh, with the extermination of the Jews. Um, so, yeah, they wanted to they wanted they wanted to have control over their own history, mm-hmm. over how they tell it, and they wanted to distinguish it from uh, Christian and European and, of course, Jewish history. So they wanted to 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 build an empire. And that this empire would have a history that would justify what they do and would, would have actually its own time. As we said, not, not dissimilar to what the French and Russian revolutionaries wanted to do and other revolutionaries in history. The idea that you are creating a, that you are creating a, new, a new historical entity that deserves its own history. Mm. So it was not quite timeless, I think. It was not timeless. They wanted control of the history and remembrance. And one way to achieve this control was to kill the Jews. So to mm. say, we don't owe anything to the origins of the Old Testament. The Old the, the Testament means also a certain moral origins. Mm-hmm. Not only uh, so we are going to build a new civilization with new rules, with new moral rules. We are going to decide who deserves to die and who deserves to live. Um, and this again, in in contradistinction to the ten, to the ten commandments. Um, you know so this. Were, yeah. They, sorry. Go on. Yeah, sorry. They were very anchored in history. They wanted. They wanted to make their own historical story, and that, on the one hand, would be part of the European Christian civilization because they they did not um, they they did not aim to abolish Christianity. They aimed at abolish Christianity's Jewish roots. That's right. A very big difference. Right. Um, so, I mean, this is this is a very this seems to be a different. It adds a totally different dimension, or it's a very different interpretation from these more functionalist uh, interpretations mm-hmm. of the Holocaust, which emphasize the kind of um, not non emotional administrative killing, and then on the other side, the interpretations that emphasize uh, the racial ideology. I mean, this seems to be a more uh, religious. Um, or, or in this explain your explanation is more infused with affect and and religious maybe even religious uh, sentiment or or some kind of I don't know uh, bid for redemp- redemption or or um, mm-hmm. a claiming of history and identity so it's yeah I mean I I don't would you would you say that these other elements are are you know 
are also part of the story? Um, yeah. Well, I was I was influenced by great Betty scholars who have written excellent books about the uh, Holocaust. I can I can think, of course, of Saul Friedlander mm-hmm. and uh, Uriel Tal. Um, Uriel Tal wrote a lot about religious and the Holocaust. From George Moses, I was influenced. I was influenced by the new scholarship that linked the Holocaust to comparative genocide and empire studies. Scholars like Mark Mazauer, Dirk Moses, or Dan Stone. Um, scholars who do cultural history uh, in the Third Reich, um, history of identities, history of emotions. Mm-hmm. And it's very important for me to to say this because you always build your own your own interpretation based on based on um, what what other scholars do. <laughs> you read it and then you come up with, with your own idea, but you, uh, you you don't invent anything new. Um, Having said this, this there are clear uh, differences between my interpretation and some um, some uh, some current views and approaches to the Holocaust. The functionalist view saw the Holocaust as um, as the um, radicalization of state processes. Uh, within the Nazi state, mm-hmm. the, the radicalization of the bureaucracy of killing, um, and took human motivations and emotions out of the story. Um, I, I think in, in so far as this interpretation uh, tells us something about the bureaucracy and about the state procedure, it is uh, very illuminating. But it tells us very little about human motivations and emotions ultimately state processes do not kill people kill mm-hmm. and when they kill and when they kill a lot of people they have to tell themselves why they do it um, other interpretations looked in the depression ideology which is very important there is no doubt but racial ideology has become so dominant as a, um, as a way for us to explain the Holocaust that I think it uh, forgets sometimes that um, uh, German anti-Semitism or uh, Nazi anti-Semitism was much more complex. And I think the, the best example for this is that if the Nazis wanted uh, to build a racial empire, and this was the main motivation for the Holocaust, why why did they burn the Torah scrolls and synagogues, which are holy religious symbols? Mm-hmm. So we we have to see race as part of the answer, but as not as the entire answer. And also, ideology has this usually um, brings scholars to look at um, biological science, at the attempt of uh, Nazis to create a rational, quote unquote, um, a rational, a rational racial ideology, at, um, and. I think the whole idea of uh, anti-Semitism is not about rationality. You may tell yourself that you are rational, but it's all about fantasies. Mm-hmm. When we when we read today what the Nazis thought about the Jews, it's laughable. I mean, this is clearly it reads like a joke, and yet people believed in it. Speaking they, actually, they were ready, they were ready to kill for it. So I take it very seriously and I ask, how did they believe in it? What was the imagination that made it possible to believe in such a fantasy? 
Yeah, your mentioning of laughter made me immediately think about uh, in the book, you know, there are all kinds of references um, in you cite them in Nazi speeches and Hitler's speeches uh, during the mm-hmm. war to, to Jewish laughter. Uh, and there, there seems uh-huh. to be something about Jewish enjoyment that was completely, you know, it was intolerable or perceived the perceived Jewish mode of enjoyment. Right. That it. Um, I, w- I wonder what you think this testifies to this kind of I mean, I think it definitely for one thing, uh, again, speaks to this obscene element in Nazism. But um, I don't know uh, wh- why this obsession with with Jew- with Jews laughing at Germans, say. <laughs> Yes, well, this was, this was especially Hitler, and I think it testified uh, uh-huh. to something in his personality, this, this, uh, this, uh, this anger at the Jews, and the, the belief that the Jews make fun of him, uh, in all his inferiority complexes came out in this, uh, that he says, the Jews laughed at me once, and now they are not laughing anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is said oftentimes, and after 45, he said it a few times in uh, some of his speeches, in the reference that was clear to the to the hearer of the speech that they don't laugh anymore because they're all dead. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Um, I just I wanted to ask one other uh, question about the book. Um, well, I mean, you you know, I, do you think? Well, there are t- there are two there are two questions, and in a way, they're they're very big questions, and in Holocaust studies. So, well, one is one is one is less so. One is my more my own um, thought. Do you think that there's anything unique about uh, German religious anti-Semitism that you sort of describe, or or this religion inflected anti-Semitism? Uh, because I'm thinking, is it is it really different? I mean, from other groups like uh, Ukrainians, for example, who participated in the Holocaust. Um, I mean, you seem to. It's of course linked to a certain government and 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 an empire, um, mm-hmm. uh, fantasies of empire. And then the other, maybe related, maybe unrelated question is whether or not you you. you think that the Holocaust was was unique or what is your position on this? You know, mm-hmm. you, you say in the book that, well, we can we can certainly compare. I mean, you take a kind of compromise view, it seems like, you know, some believe that it's unique. Um, some believe that it should be compared to other genocides. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about that? Yes. So I, I'd like to I'd like to answer the first question in the following way. Mm-hmm. So I said that the, the Nazis um the Nazi constructed a story about themselves and about their past. So every historian, or also the reader, can ask, okay, so where did they take this material for the stories? And they took the material to tell this story from the past of Jewish, German, and Christian um, um, relations, just like we. If we look back at that, I want to tell now the story of my relationship with his girlfriend that left me. So I'll go back to our relationship and I'll take, and I'll pick and choose, of course. That's the whole point. You don't tell yourself what happened. You pick right. and choose. Also, the Nazis picked and choose. Picked and chose. So part of the story had, had religious elements, but by this, I don't want to say the German religious the German uh, uh, Christianity was anti-Semitic in a, in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Most of the Nazis who used this story or who created this story perhaps were not even religious. They did not go to church. They, but they went back and they told themselves a story. 
that had religious elements, just like it had, just like it had racial elements, just like it had elements from the belief that the Jews are the fathers of Bolshevism. Mm-hmm. So this does not mean that in reality, really, German Christianity was um, was specifically anti. Semitic, but that people write and created a certain story. So I think mm-hmm. this is this is a very a very important distinction in how I built and how I built the story. That is how I how I built the story of how the Nazis built their story. Right, right. I see what you're that, saying. Um, mm-hmm. That's um, what I would like to say. Um, now about uniqueness. Actually, I'm, I'm compromising in the sense that I don't, I don't believe that the Holocaust was unique insofar as claims for uniqueness are identity claims. Uh-huh. And many countries and many historical events are being claimed as unique. We can think about, about us in America, you know, um, that American history is exceptional, <laughs> a city on the hill, you know, a story of freedom and liberty. Well, I teach at the University of uh, Virginia. Liberty is uh, very important, <laughs> Jefferson is important, but he, as we know, had also slaves. And this is also part of a story that hasn't been told often, but now, of course, it is. Right. So, so I think when people say the Holocaust is unique, it is more of an identity claim, identity claim about their suffering. Uh, and it's not a historical thing. So the historians, in a sense, all all uh, all events are uh, unique. All events, I would use the word particular. All events are particular. <laughs> but events also belong to a certain family. There is the modern family of revolutions. The French Revolution, the Russian, the Cuban, the Iranian, modern revolutions. Although the French is probably the first one, it is the first one, it is, and it has, like all other revolutions, particular characteristics. This does not mean that it is more or less important or than the Cuban Revolution. Similarly with the Holocaust, there is the family of modern genocide, and the Holocaust can be understood only within the family of modern comparative genocides. There were genocides before the Holocaust, and there were genocides after the Holocaust, alas. Mm-hmm. And the history of, of, of the Holocaust, it is tied together with the idea that, with the European idea that you can wipe up, wipe out people, whole people, in order to create new worlds. And this is, this, these, this idea was actually started and perpetrated in the colonies. Not right. in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. So yes. we should. We, what I ask myself in the book, I say I don't believe that the Holocaust is unique, but it was perceived as such by the German and the Jews and the Europeans. And for this, we have a lot of evidence that during the Holocaust, from 19, in, in the Second World War, when the Nazis started to exterminate the, the, the Jews in the millions, People all over Europe, Jews and non-Jews, wrote something, something unbelievable is happening here. Something unique. So I say it was perceived as such. And if we want to understand the Holocaust, we have to take this subjective experience of people at the time, seriously, and to ask why is it that the Nazis, who perpetrated so many other genocides, 
their list of genocide is, is really long. They always have very long list of, of enemies and very short list of friends. Why, why is it that this particular genocide, the one against the Jews, was perceived as unique, and the one against the Poles was not? Mm-hmm. This, I think, is a, this, I think is a, the right historical question, but this does not mean that I believe also that it was unique. Right, and it's 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 definitely linked to. Well, you spend the whole book just talking about that, but specifically, uh, it's linked to the burning of the Hebrew Bible. Um, the Jews had a different function, in other words, for for Germans than other from other um, nations, um, races, as they would have, they would have it. But um, so, okay, we've already we've taken up a lot of your time, and I I wanted to ask before we wrap up uh, about what you're working on now, your latest project. <laughs> So I'm working on something that is very different and yet very much connected. <laughs> I uh, decided that I, I said what I have to say about German history and about the Holocaust. And I'm now working on 1948 in Palestine. Mm. Um, I'm writing a book about the war between the Jews and the Arabs. Um, that is based and it has two narratives. One is um, to uh, describe, to, to trace the experience of Jews and Arabs and British based on letters and diaries and also some oral history. Uh, letters and diaries written during um, the, the uh, war. Mm-hmm. And to capture the experience of people, the contingencies, no one knew at the beginning of the war that the Jews would have such a resounding victory that 750,000 Palestinians would would be uprooted from their uh, homes. Um, so to capture all the emotions, the fear, this is one This is one um, narrative of the book. And the other is to place 1948 in Palestine in a global perspective of decolonization, uh, of human rights, of forced migrations, partitions, so paying attention to the partition of Germany, for example, in the mid-40s, the partition of the sub-Indian continent, the forced migration in Europe and in the sub-Indian continent, the decolonization and the British role in India and Palestine. Once you put Palestine in a global perspective, you... Um, you um, uh, you, you you gain an idea that this event was not unique, <laughs> as many people would like to say, hmm. but it has a broader context and can then be explained in a much more uh, convincing way by linking it to what other people around the world did and thought was possible to do. So it's a lot also about 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 imagination. Right. You, you know, you said at the beginning that we write the same book <laughs> our whole career in, in a way. I mean, no, I, I feel it. The history of emotions is there, the imagination. And also you're not you don't shy away from dealing with huge, uh, <laughs> you know, topics that, um, <laughs> yes, that uh, that are very emotional for a lot of people. Um, OK, so, well, thanks for thanks for talking uh, to us and um We've been, we've been speaking with Alon Confino about his book, A World Without Jews, The Nazi Imagination from Persecution to Genocide. Alon, thanks uh, again for doing this. Thank you, Anna. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me. And thanks to our audience uh, for listening. Till next time. <laughs>